the main focus, I'll put links to the, your 2017 paper on the hard problem of consciousness. But for the most part... That I, would be nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I'm going to put a direct link to that in the paper, because I, I mean, in the video, because I think people should read this. It's very long, very, very in-depth. And I like that. I mean, that's ex when someone has a lot to say about something so complicated, I think you can't really summarize it. It's, it's, it's something that does require that level of detail. So to all those who are going to read this paper, just bear that in mind. This, you gotta, it probably takes repeat readings for, for most people to really understand and grasp most of the concepts. But you do a great job at putting some of the imagery. And I mean, it, it's, it's a wonderful paper overall. Well, thank you. Um, two things come to mind. One is that it's a long paper, but it compresses a yeah. huge amount of knowledge. So if you can get through that, you've saved an enormous amount of time. And that's one thing that my students always came to realize. Um, it, it was a way that they could get an entree into so much psychological, neurobiological knowledge uh, and start organizing it for themselves. Whereas if all you did was you gave them 200 articles, uh, which may be explained or an explanation offered in this one article of mine, uh, they, they wouldn't know where to begin and they wouldn't, they would have to build up a model in their mind. And that's what I'm giving them. Not to say it's the final model, but it's been validated, each of the models in multiple ways. And, and it gives them a way to start organizing all this information because ultimately the model as a thing in itself isn't what we're interested in. We're interested in understanding what the hell is going on. And um, if models help us to create stories about what's going on and those stories make sense and help us to clarify what we're learning, well, that's what they're for. Mm. So um, I was gonna say something else, but it slipped my mind. I should write notes. <laughs> now, anyway, you know, the, the, uh, the, the a huge chunk of this um, conversation will be about the hard problem of consciousness and your paper on that topic. And I think the best place mm -hmm. for us to start, I've, I've got a list of questions from, from the general fans, audience, uh, listeners and viewers, mm -hmm. and I'll just go through those later on in the conversation. But for the beginning, I think let's start with what is the hard problem to you? And if you could tell me your philosophical history of the hard problem and your perception of it, what would that story be? Well, I don't have my 2017 paper in front of me, but it was David Chalmers who described what he considered the hard problem. And uh, my comment about it was the following. Um, how to put it. Um, let's go back to uh, the orbits of the planets. Uh, if we can predict the orbits of the planets with great precision, uh, we don't have to necessarily visit them. We don't have to touchy-feely them. Um, it's a description that's predictively effective. And so my uh, comment at the beginning of my 
magnum opus, and I think I made a very similar comment in my 2017 paper, is let's say you have a neural network model which describes identified brain cells and identified regions of the brain interacting in a way that's validated by neurobiological data, anatomical and physiological, uh, in some cases uh, biochemical. And let's say the emergent properties map quantitatively onto lots of behaviors that interest you, including parametric properties of conscious experiences like seeing, hearing, feeling, knowing things. Um, That's all equations can do for you. Uh, And um, if you expect an equation to see color or to hear musical tone, that will never happen. And it doesn't happen in mind-brain science, but it doesn't happen in physics or chemistry. Mm. And people have come to understand that if you get predictive insight based on harmonious laws that make things seem clear, uh, that's enough. Mm. You know, it's to think you would get more, which is implicit in the definition of the hard problem is asking for something that equations can never give you in any science and only look to sciences that are better developed to realize you don't really need it to feel quite satisfied that you've understood something. So that's my response. It's it's sufficient. Of course, it is a mystery You know, and as I point out, let's say right down to the photons. And, you know, for example, Gail Carpenter and I, among other colleagues, did very detailed um, models of um, uh, the transduction of color signals in vertebrate cones. And we were able to quantitatively simulate very hard data using designs that you could see had been used in many other parts of our brains. But the model doesn't see color. It just describes how we see color. And there is that explanatory gap. And I, for one, don't see how equations can ever bridge the gap, but we don't need equations to do it because we have our conscious minds. Mm. Um, so one of your I don't know one, of, one yeah. of your quotes in the in the paper was as in quantum theory, there are measurement limitations in understanding our brains. We can no more personally ride an electron than we can enter a neuron that is participating in a conscious experience. That's that's pretty much along the lines of what you're trying to say. Yeah, it is what I'm trying to say. And of course, there are superb neurophysiologists now who do enter neurons. In fact, uh, a colleague, Earl Miller at MIT, might put an an array of 100 or more electrodes in three different parts of the brain and 
do experiments with the weight behaving monkeys to try to correlate what the monkeys are seeing and doing with the recordings. And it's very insightful. Mm. Uh, and if you have a strong enough theory to explain what these patterns mean for emergent properties to link brain to mind, to link brain to uh, the perception, the action, uh, then it's extremely useful. But in itself, without a theory, um, it's not satisfying enough. You need more. Um, you know, where's the spice? <laughs> um, yeah, so. What are your thoughts on, on Thomas Nagel's What Is It Like? That, that, that specific component of consciousness, the what is it like? And the fact that we'll never really be able to say what it's like to be a bat low. Well, to the extent to which what it's like is that having, having an equation that, that is the qualia, you can't do that. That's what I just said. Hmm. But there are cases already, many cases where we've developed models, principled models that you can understand are using principles that are parsimoniously used in many processes um, that can tell you a lot about uh, different percepts and where the end, like what's the difference between vision and audition say? Well, even though the circuits uh, even though the equations, I mean, the local neuronal processes and the modules, as I talked about last time, a certain number of conserved microcircuits that are used for many things, uh, may be shared in vision and audition. If you look at how they're specialized in order to be sensitive to environmental invariance of those signals in the world, photons and phonons, and how they're organized by sound sources, then you can begin to understand, wow, this is really fascinating because here is a universal computational substrate that can be specialized to resonate with the invariance of different environmental experiences. And that is the power of uh, how evolution has crafted our brains in order to be able to do that. Mm. And we know that, you know, there are a variety of species that are resonating on things that we can't do, like consider honeybees or consider the vision of birds, uh, you know, certain birds from hundreds of feet in the air can detect the movement of a fish under the water and dive straight down to it. But we can't do that. But that doesn't mean that their neurons, their fundamental components are, you know, something totally unfamiliar. That's not true. And that's why for quite a while, um, people studied invertebrates um, circuitries like crayfish swimmerets, et cetera, et cetera. And um, 
one of my colleagues many years ago, Al Silverstein out in California, I, I, I hope he's still alive, he's a wonderful scientist, you know, he, he had, uh, I guess, the, studied the stomatogastric ganglion of, I think it was the lobster, and he had characterized on multiple levels of physiology and anatomy, all the parts. And when it was all said and done, he still didn't know how it worked. And he said that, and that was because it's an emergent property of all those parts interacting in a highly nonlinear feedback manner. Mm. And Al acknowledged that he did what you could do with brilliant experiments. And then you need uh, a level of description, notably a sufficiently powerful model that can show how those components interact to generate the emergent properties that are the adaptive behavior of the stomatogastric ganglion or whatever else mm. um, uh, we're considering. What so it's that speculative leap we talked about a little last time. Mm. You know, how you discover that, it's not, we don't have an algorithm for it. Yes. In fact, uh, my my colleague, Rudy Kalman, uh, I don't know if you studied the Kalman filter, which is used in many problems in prediction and engineering. And he was trying to characterize uh, uh, in, in a very rigorous way uh, linear controllers. But at least at the time, he said, when he got to multi-linear controllers, he couldn't even do that. You know, the methods he had just weren't powerful enough. So the miracle is that somehow the methods that I've been lucky enough to discover have not hit that brick wall yet. Um, and, uh, and lots of other people use use them in one form or another, including in technology. And as I, I may have mentioned last time, one of the reasons why Gail Carpenter and I and a number of our PhD students and postdocs were eager to specialize our model discoveries into applications in engineering technology and AI was to, uh, to show they work in the real world. And, you know, one way you can show they work in a way uh, that people who don't really care at all about mind and brain mm. uh, is by doing a technological application that they do care about and frankly can make a lot of money for them. Um, yeah. So, uh, Steve, the approach that the science of the brain and the approach of philosophy of mind are very different. As a scientist fundamentally involved in this interface of mind and body, what are your thoughts on philosophy as a whole regarding this, their approach to this topic or, or philosophy's engagement in this field? Because definitions play a big role and they often, there's often arguments. I mean, within philosophy, even merely starting with the brain as, as the source of consciousness seems to be problematic for many philosophers. Uh, you have philosophers who claim that consciousness is fundamental to reality. You have others that, con that 
claim that consciousness is a fundamental feature of reality. So panpsychism, uh, which integrated information theory, is pretty much a form of that. Do you are you able as a scientist to even um, have a conversation with those people with such uh, different views from your own? Well. <clears throat> Uh, I always ask, what can you explain with your concepts? Mm -hmm. And by explain, I mean facts, data. Uh, if you can't explain anything, then you're not in the ballpark yet. <laughs> um, now, one of the things that's fascinated me personally is, um, I don't know if you looked at uh, a later chapter in my book. It's about um, really simple evolutionary precursors of yeah. brains. I talk about a universal developmental code and show how uh, mathematical laws and primitive circuits that are controlling the development of non-neural uh, single-cell or multicellular organisms uh, have many of the uh, features that the laws have that I might use to explain mammalian and human data. Mm. You know, I, I talked about hydra's heads and slime mold aggregation and, you know, stuff like that. And um, to me, it wasn't an accident that I published an article in 1978 called Communication, Memory, and Development, where I described these things theoretically. And in the same year, I published uh, you know, an early magnum opus called The Theory of Human Memory, colon, and then more stuff about what was in it. In fact, together they were book length and I originally planned to publish it as a book, but I was young and foolish. I didn't know what I was doing. And so uh, Robert Rosen, Bob Rosen, who was a very sweet and you know significant uh, mathematical biologist also was an editor of a book series called Progress in Theoretical Biology. And, and he was eager to publish the two articles as articles, but by putting it in something called Progress in Theoretical Biology, it buried it from the viewpoint of marketing. So that was one of many naive things I've done in my life that I could kick myself for, but I'm just a naive guy basically. and. And I welcome it because having a naive approach to stuff really helps you to be creative. You don't come in with, you know, too many preconceived ideas. So there's a cost for it. And so far, the cost has been worth it. Mm. But I should have published a major book in 78 on um, mind and brain. Mm. As it is, I wised up a little and by... Uh, 82, I published a book that brought together my articles, but it, you know, and that I think a lot of people were influenced by. Mm. It was called Studies of Mind and Brain, 
I think it's still in print in some form. Um, anyway. So, so it's, you have people like Edelman and Tononi, high order information theories and integrated information theory. At some point, this is quite a lengthy quote, so bear with me. This is your words. I mean, they used the word information as a critical component of the hypothesis. But what is information? The scientific concept of information in the mathematical sense of information theory by Shannon requires that a set of states exist whose information can be computed and that fixed probabilities exist for transitions between these states. In contrast, the brain is a self-organizing system that continually creates new states through development and learning and whose probability structure is continually changing along with them. Without a theory that explains how these states arise and how their transition probabilities may change through time in response to changing environmental statistics and internal representations thereof, the classical concept of information is useless. You want to unpack that a bit for us? Well, I think you just did. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure what else. I mean, um, yeah, well, Jerry Edelman uh, was a very brilliant man and a Nobel laureate. And, uh, there are a lot of Jerry Edelman stories I won't go into, but he was a faculty member at the Rockefeller University when I was a graduate student there. And <laughs> one of the more favorable descriptions of Jerry was the Black Knight. <laughs> <laughs> And you, I, I won't go beyond that uh, in this public forum, but he, he made very many useful contributions. And then as many Nobel laureates decided, hey, you know, <laughs> the next great frontier is brain. Hmm. I'm going to get my next Nobel laureate in brain. But the problem was Jerry didn't know any data. You know, and I was lucky to grow up bathed in data, which is where I comfortably live. And you can't go very far if you don't know the data. Mm. And Tononi initially, although I haven't kept track of his work, he's a clever person, um, try to give a scaler to discuss you know, whether, I don't remember the details in such a long time, whether the system was complex enough to, you know, I think do consciousness or something. And mm. My remark was, hey, you, you can't do anything with a scalar. You know, I mean, we have a brain after all for a reason. Mm. Um, but to the extent to which everyone's contribution is useful, um, hey, do it. Um, I only view problems if work is useful, and it's not just hype, of which we know today there's a huge amount of hype. And um, if it's done in a solipsistic environment, uh, I always taught my students, and it was a policy of our department, whenever we were studying models to do it in a comparative setting, what are all the models out there? What are their strengths and weaknesses? 
if we have models we favor, do they have weaknesses that other models have overcome? And if they have, how can our models be refined and further developed to also do that? So that's a certain attitude. Mm -hmm. And if everyone's making their proposal in the context of a comparative analysis, then hey, go for it, it's good. But if it's solipsistic and if it's aimed at selling uh, any idea in a, I'll push it to the limit here, a cult-like setting, mm -hmm. we know that's bad news. Mm. And to me, the worst part of it is students go into um, courses with famous professors or any professor who they like as a teacher, and they're going to try to absorb everything the teacher says um, at the time of life when you can learn better than at any other time in your life, if only to get a good grade. And it's really not proper. I would almost go so far to say it's not ethical to give kids a misleading view of the world that they're about to have to live in. If you know better, if you don't know something's out there, hey, you do the best you can. That's all any of us can do. But if you know something's out there and you try to shield your kids from it because, hey, your work isn't as good and you want your kids to do what you do so you can publish more papers or whatever, that's unethical mm. in my mind. That's the strongest I'd put it. Usually I'd say it's just in a weak character, okay? Mm. Opportunism, marketing, you know, mm. those words are bad enough. <laughs> uh, the last, so the last time we went very in depth on in adaptive residence theory in, in, in most of your work, obviously it's just scratching the surface of what is very complex. And as a scientist, I mean, huge respect for your work and everybody, seems to have a consensus regarding that. So I'm trying to frame this conversation slightly more philosophically so that people can get a deeper understanding of the science behind the work and what its implications on the hard problem as a whole are. And with that in mind, the understanding of other theories of consciousness are important because with yours, you can highlight flaws within theirs, just the same way you did with the information aspect of this one. Along those lines of Nobel laureates doing that, then you've got others like Francis Crick, um, Penrose, I mean, very different types of theories of consciousness. You've got someone who was approaching it from a panpsychist perspective, who's claiming that consciousness is that fundamental feature. And then you've got someone like Penrose who claims that consciousness is almost quantum in a, in a sense and beyond what classical physics can interpret. And therefore the data in this case would not be as easily applicable. What do you think about that? Sorry, that was a very long question. Well, well, I don't want to sound like a broken record, <laughs> but it's always, you know, what theories have the broadest uh, and most principled explanatory range and how many of their uh, predictions have been supported by subsequent data. And... Um, 
in terms of quantum brain, you know, there's an obvious sense in which our brains are quantum. Hey, all matter comes out of quantum mechanics, so or some kind of quantum reality, even if quantum mechanics is not yet a complete theory, as some people think, and you know, string theory and all that. So obviously, you know, the structure of matter would embody ourselves in a world that has a quantum substrate. Mm -hmm. But I take the kind of work I've done as an existence proof. And there have been many times in my life when I've been dying to use some kind of concepts um, to explain the kinds of phenomena that I'm really yearning to understand. Mm -hmm. And the existence proof here is that uh, if you look at all the things that I and my colleagues have explained, which I think has the broadest and deepest interdisciplinary explanatory range, linking brain to mind of any existing theory, I've never needed quantum theory. Except, except, uh, for example, uh, at the um, uh, sensory level. So, for example, um, I mentioned briefly Gail Carpenter, and I did some work on um, uh, photoreceptor transduction in vertebrate cones. And what that means is photons come in, photon to the quantum constituents of light. You know, the, the whole thing with Einstein and wave-particle dualism and all those profound things. Um, but photons come in. And the question is, how does, how does a photo detector, which is at the front end of... Um, registering that there's something going on in the visual world, how does it generate a signal uh, through the retina to the optic nerve? And one of the things we realized is that uh, the brain, our brains in many species, I think we were doing um, turtle, I think with turtle photoreceptors because, oh gosh, uh, um, you know, it's been so long ago. Mm. Some really wonderful experimentalists had worked up turtle phototransduction, and it was a parametric database, really challenging. And there was some really bizarre, at the first blush, properties of the data curves. And uh, what we showed is that if you had a temporal averaging of the photons, just so you're computing a photon density. And you know, it would rise and then it would fall when a, a, a little event occurred. We showed with simple ideas like that, you could quantitatively explain all those data. So we, we faced the problem that you have to transduce from individual photons, which is on the quantum level, mm -hmm. into 
a classical description of neuronal dynamics. We needed some stuff you don't use everywhere, and that is a simple version that goes way back in phylogeny, and I've talked about with um, some of my graduate students, we, we looked at multiple species that have these precursors, what ultimately a discovery I made called spectral timing, mm -hmm. um, which is um, both in space and in time, our brains face the problem of going from, you know, you could respond to a single photon, but that's too short to register any macroscopic event. Or um, in space, you could have a cell that's selective to just a very little region, but that's not going to influence your navigational behavior. So one of the things I talk about in my book, I like to sort of say it in a cute way, how do little nerve cells generate uh, spatial and temporal representations that can influence adaptive behaviors. And, and a key ingredient in that, turns out, uh, are called grid cells and time cells. And one of the things I loved about this modeling, much of which I did with Praveen Pilly, a brilliant uh, PhD student of mine who then worked with me in much more um, senior positions before he got, I think, I think he's got quite a, an important job at Intel now. Um, they obeyed basically the same laws. And they're in two parallel streams in the anterhinal to hippocampal cortex. And because of this um, uh, homology between the spatial and temporal laws, I, I love to say, you know, give me a break here, space and time are one. Mm -hmm. And I called it neural relativity because space and time are one. But the parsimony of it was breathtaking. Mm. Now, you know, the evolutionary precursors of that, someone else is going to have to look at, but I'm convinced they'll love the answer, you know, and it'll be well worth their time. But to be able to say space and time are one and to show, you know, and we're talking about entorhinal cortex. I didn't know from entorhinal cortex when I was young. It's an acquired taste. You get forced into it by conceptual questions that you then get stuck on, you get hung up on until you've got to get an answer, not the final answer. There's no final answer. But a a computationally effective and experimentally remarkably successful pair of models. They, Praveen and I um, did mainly the space part of it, but 
we were able to simulate quantitatively very challenging parametric data about grid cell dynamics. And then uh, the time stuff I did with a series of other PhD students, Nestor Schmayek and John Merrill, among others. Um, so I had called it spectral timing because there's a spectrum of cells. Um, if you want to go from little nerve cells to temporal delays, you could bridge. So let's say, to give a simple example, let's say uh, I'm a, a human or a pigeon or a rat, or let's say that I have to wait two or three seconds after a stimulus to make a response in order to get my reward. And if I prematurely make the response, I might get punished. Um, not so different like a student in a classroom. You have to know when it's okay to raise your hand. And so spectral timing, you have lots of nerve cells, each with its own local um, uh, firing delay because they all have different rates of firing. So one cell might fire, bump, another cell might fire, bump, another cell might fire, bump, bump, bump. And, um, and if a stimulus activates the whole spectrum, it turns out that each of those cells has an adaptive weight assigned to it. Mm -hmm. And the correlation between the stimulus and when the action is trained to occur is going to strengthen some cells in the spectral spectrum better than others. So, for example, you could train. I'm not sure if I can show you this. Uh, one sec. Bring, uh, Steve, you just mind bring it more to your left? I'll, I'm going to jiggle. I didn't do it. Bring it more to um, your lips, uh, Steve, oh, the other way. Yes. Can you see? Okay. The, uh, can you? Oh, there, there they are. There are the curves. Cool. There are the curves. I see it, okay. So, you know, it's in an a time is plotted against activity. Mm -hmm. And for example, you can get spectral cells to fire selectively at two distinct times. Mm. And if you notice, the bump at the earlier time is narrower yes. than the bump at the later time. That is a signature of spectral timing. And you find it in the cerebellum, you find it in the basal ganglia. Um, uh, I'm blocking the several other parts of the brain. You find it and I can't pull it all up fast enough. It is a conserved mechanism. And you also find evolutionary precursors of it in very primitive organisms where it isn't even neural. Mm. It is a way of doing a kind of blocks law, a trade-off between time and energy. That's what's behind it. Mm. Um, but that kind of spectral timing that I just showed you, you can record from in cerebella uh, <coughs> parallel fiber Purkinje cell synapses. Mm. Um, so, uh, Steve, on, on was, the, so, uh, oh, sorry, you yeah. finished that first? No, no, I, uh, I just that, want 
I was forgetting why I was telling you this. What <laughs> triggered this reply? It's fine. Maybe if anyway, I ask the next question, it'll come back to you. Um, on that note, you, um, you're talking about uh, the fact that it's also not just in neural cells. Uh, there, there's work being done by people like Michael Levin. He's at Tufts University where they're starting to show this blurry nature of what intelligence seems to be. Now, fair enough, some people might argue that defining the word intelligence here plays a big role. But in a nutshell, what he's trying to say is there's bioelectrical communication occurring between cells um, that goes beyond what our hardwired DNA is producing to communicate between cells. And because of that, they're able to actually do some incredible work at this lab. At uh, it's called Levin Lab. I don't know if you want to check this out afterwards, but they're able to create. Well, I, I've I've interacted with Michael Levin okay, in the past, okay, but great. you're not giving me a good a focus enough prime uh, for me to remember <laughs> what we were interacting about, and because there was something he was doing that I thought some of my work clarified, but I. Uh, Oh. Just talking about intelligence, I can't, well, in, in, can't in, remember. In essence, his work starting to almost confirm panpsychism as a theory of consciousness in the sense that there is... What does that mean? Panpsychism basically means that consciousness is a fundamental feature of reality, not in, not in the sense that consciousness is just everywhere. Because like, a lot of people, well, it, technically, that is what they mean, but... For the most okay, part. well, let me interrupt you there just because mm -hmm. that, that reminded me of why I was telling you a lot of this stuff. The reason why I was telling you about um, uh, some of these uh, uh, primitive and uh, not even neural uh, mechanisms is, is because, for example, uh, there are very primitive processes which have properties of resonance, in fact, adaptive resonance. And one of the ones that I talked about in my communication memory and development paper way back in 78, and then I review it in was it chapter 15 or 16, I forget, in my 17, uh, in my uh, magnum opus, has to do with the process whereby a blastula uh, during when you have a you know single cell very early uh, embryo becomes a gastrula. Mm -hmm. You know you start with um, a spherically uh, symmetric uh, set of cells after the first few stages of mitosis, and then some of the cells get selectively active, and they start sending pseudopodia to the other side of the uh, blastula. And on the other side, certain cells develop adhesiveness. And when some of those pseudopodia uh, hit the adhesive cells, they stick. And then this accumulates until enough of these, it's an autocatalytic interaction, till enough of these pseudopodes um, connect. Now, what? why is that going to do something? It's because the pseudopodes have contractile properties. 
you know, if they go up and they don't hit, they might come down and go up. And if enough of them stick, it becomes like a primitive muscle. And they contract and then they pull the cells on the two sides together. And that starts to create a gastrulation. Gastrulation is the next step in cellular development. And if in my communication memory and development paper way, way back, I, I began to realize that, you know, these uh, morphogenetic processes already embodied uh, primitive versions of things like adaptive resonance because the um, when the connections occur, the, the, the prediction is they get more and more tuned, which strengthens the syncytium. And as I recall, there was some later data that were at least partially consistent, but a very hard experiment to do directly. But my prediction would be it's a simple form of adaptive resonance in uh, you know, an early stage of morphogenesis in multiple species. And I, there are a number of examples of these. Um, remember, I talked about complementary computing, a kind of yin-yang fitting together. And that goes in multiple parts of biology, too. And although I'm going to make a statement now that, you know, I have, it, it's the rank is form of speculation. It doesn't give you any predictive ability beyond what wonderful scientists uh, have already done. I think an example of that complementary computing is the double helix, DNA and RNA, mm. double helixes. It's, it's a way of um, bringing uh, complementary stuff together and into a, a you know, a more complete representation of the information you need to do stuff. I, I would love to, you know, uh, um, Barbara McClintock then did wonderful work on uh, what she called dancing genes. I don't, I don't think that was quite it, but trying to get at the dynamics of how the double helix, which usually you see in a, you know, a static form and some wonderful um, chemical uh, architecture, but it's very dynamic. It's always doing stuff. Um, so I think there's resonance and complementarity everywhere. And remember last time I talked about the fact that in many parts of my work, there are principles of complementarity um, uncertainty and resonance. And we know, coming back to quantum theory, those are principles at the core of quantum theory. That doesn't mean that we are operating on the quantum level. It just means these are kind of universal principles of nature. And we, through evolutionary adaptation over the eons, have been built embodying them in a form that could support animal intelligence. Mm. So if you ask about panpsychism and stuff, well, you're never going to get into that system just like you're not going to 
write an electron, mm. but hey, they're built on very similar principles as we are. And, and I feel I've understood more by commenting about these three general principles that are uh, conserved over phylogeny and evolutionary time than just saying the word panpsychism, which I I want to know exactly what are you talking about, because it's a lovely phrase, and it's important to have a lovely phrase, but I need to know where's the beef here? Where yeah. is the beef? So uh, where is it? What what what's the beef? So just 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 to define it a little bit, um Mike Mike once wrote a paper with Daniel Dennett. I think this would be a nice way to, to reel it in. It's called Cognition All the Way Down. And the reason why I bring that paper up is because at some point I was going to mention Dennett. You do mention him in your paper. Um, and Dennett doesn't have a panpsychist view. So panpsychism is pretty much the, the, it pretty much means consciousness is everywhere, not always in the very mystical sense that a lot of people seem to think of it. They, they're pretty much trying to um, come across by saying that cognition or protocognition or even proto-consciousness can be found within smaller layers of of reality in terms of a human so you can go down into like let's say tissues and cells and and within those bio biological processes you can find forms of proto-consciousness um well i don't necessarily agree with it but i'm i'm, I'm wait wait let me let me uh, you you really have to be clear about <laughs> what you mean by consciousness. Yes, I um, agree with that completely. I've already given you examples with gastrulation and with uh, talking about complementarity and resonance and uncertainty going all through nat the natural world that these things go all the way down. Yes, yes. Now, the question is, what are, what's the definition of cognition that you're using here? And what's the definition of consciousness? We, there are these shared processes. Uh, as I remarked in our last discussion, I'm happy to believe that every species that solves the stability plasticity dilemma has some form of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, my own work, I showed that to do that, at least in everything I've seen in experiments and models, you need a combination of learning expectation, attention, resonance, and synchrony. And when you have all those things, if um, you're exposed to an external world that has stable enough events uh, for you to actually learn something with spatial and temporal stability, then uh, the process will also give you a form of consciousness either of recognition or of perception. But that was a big if, too. You know, what is the stable world that the resonant events are interacting with? And is it 
what we would call consciousness or cognition. So I think that until I hear their definitions and how they've used to explain something interesting, I would be more comfortable just saying stuff like I said, giving examples of shared mechanisms like adaptive resonance and gastrulation and is complementarity all over the place. Um, uh, but cognition all the way down, it's cute. <laughs> in your paper, but, but, you mentioned... In but your as I pointed out in my book, um, Dan, who is a very bright leading of philosopher of mind, also wrote things about uh, neon color spreading mm. that are just wrong. And then he he became sarcastic about all the fools who actually believe it's a phenomenon. Mm. And it, it really, sarcasm in science is ad hominem and gratuitous. Mm. And he was especially embarrassing when he was wrong. And at a meeting where I invited him to speak, because I don't only invite people who I agree with, he said to the audience that he was wrong. Mm. But I'm not sure if after he left the meeting, he still said it. <laughs> he was just surrounded by good psychophysicists and neuroscientists and modelers. And What exactly did he say? And the, what? What exactly? He, he well... I think I, part of my talk was, I think, you know, so long ago, explaining a lot of data about how we consciously see, you know, brightness, perception, form, uh, neon color spreading, uh, you know, general surface filling in, the complementarity of perceptual boundaries and surfaces. And he was one of two philosophers of mind I invited. Anyway, he just got up and started his talk with that retraction. Because <laughs> uh, what, what, you know, if he had claimed it again, people would say, but, but Steve just explained data about it. It exists. You can see it, you know, with your own mind. Mm. So... I don't know where he stands on it now. He's very bright and very creative, yes. but uh, he he went too far there and he was wrong. And what made what annoyed me was it's my current understanding that he first heard about neon color spreading when he came kindly. I don't take it for granted that people come to my lectures. He came to a talk I gave on vision, in which one of the kinds of data I was explaining was neon color spreading data. And, you know, as part of a, a more integrated view of a lot of visual processes, like neon color spreading is, you know, the reason it got popular, uh, well, one reason it got popular is because we pulled it out of anonymity because I could see that it gave really good visible evidence of our predicted laws of how boundaries and surfaces interact because there were colors where there shouldn't have been colors. Mm -hmm. And I actually 
emphasize it. And then Ken Akiyama and Mike Paradiso and other people picked up on it and started doing more experimental work on it. But it was it was lying unnoticed mm. until the theory clarified how remarkable the interactions were and gave um, compelling evidence of surface filling in, which is precisely what Dan was saying doesn't exist. <laughs> yes, that is something he <laughs> And it's not the only one, you know, Mike. My very gifted colleague, Benjo Pinna, has what he calls the watercolor effect, which is all about surface filling in. Mm. And, you know, you could say this is due to the first competitive state doing that, da, 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 interacting with it. Da, da. I mean, we can explain it all. In, and you can see it. <laughs> are, there any, are there any philosophers of mine who, that you, uh, whose work you're familiar with who you feel does represent your your form of emergentism in a great way or your view on consciousness in a similar way? Well, people don't have to do what I do in any way. I'm, I'm blocking on his name. The other philosopher of mind who I invited to that meeting long ago is a Canadian guy. And Canadian. I forget his name. It's, uh, I shouldn't forget it, but I, you know, I, I'd have to prime myself. My mind's elsewhere now. And he gave a lovely talk. I mm. really thought it was a useful, interesting talk. Was it Paul Churchland? No, it's not Paul. No. Paul also did serious work. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. Anyway, but, but my advice to anyone who wants to talk scientifically about mind and brain is read the data yeah, and then read the state of the modeling community. Um, cause you don't want to make a fool of yourself. <laughs> no. Okay. So the, with that in mind, so we, we've, we've discussed the, the people who have, Wait, let me, let me make a remark about that. You know, um, I forget who said it, but a, a very distinguished guy uh, who I very much admired, and and he gave a keynote lecture, and and he said, you know, everybody thinks they can have a theory about how our minds work because we have a mind, mm. but by extension, we also have electrons and photons and atomic nuclei. Do we feel we're immediately physicists, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's people think introspective evidence will explain their mind, but remember the main point of cognitive impenetrability is that you and I can see each other, hear each other, have feelings about each other, learn from each other. Because we have no cognitive penetrability, we don't know what's up here. We don't know that even the brain is the seat of intelligence from our daily experience. And as you know, anyone who studied the history of neuroscience knows, people originally thought that other organs were the seat of intelligence, the heart or the yeah. um, pancreas even, mm. you know, so, um, yeah. So, so to you, I mean, fundamentally, the, that phenomenological first person subjective qualia, a qualitative feel, 
is explainable via scientific theory. Just, I'm just obviously I'm just playing devil's advocate. I know what your view pretty much is, but I, I want people to, to understand this as much as possible. That intentionality that people talk about, that intentionality, um, the aboutness of of reality. For you, that's nothing specifically well, and special about this. Well, again, you have to be very clear about how you're using the word intentionality. This time I'm talking uh, about... I mean, for, yeah. for example, in adaptive resonance theory, there are top-down expectations, which are a form of intentionality. Mm -hmm. There are predictions of what's going to happen next, which are a form of intentionality. Mm -hmm. I'd have to know an example that would be different from that to realize that someone's talking about something else. So you using the nice word, you know, some words are better as chapter headings mm. and then you write what you mean by the word in and of themselves. They don't tell you. Do you know what what meaning of intentionality is being expressed here? Can you articulate it better? I think, Did I say something irrelevant? What would be, I think maybe uh, the best way for me to do that, let me define it from the um, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, just to make it easier. Um, in philosophy, intentionality is the power of minds and mental states to be about, to represent or to stand for things, properties and states of affairs. Now, I know in your theory, obviously you address these, but to a philosopher of mind, this is considered almost a, a very special property, a qualitative, um, it's difficult for me to actually explain it, to be honest. Well, that, that's what all my work is about. Yeah, I know, that's the you know, But, <laughs> you know, uh, that's what the work does. But, but, you know, when you're talking about what it's about, you know, there are multidimensional aspects of that knowing, including the perceptual, the cognitive, the recollective, um, the emotional, the action, the appetitive, you know, uh, so it's too vague. <laughs> um, the, the issue is explanatory power. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as as people have written about time and again, you know, um, in physics, people were doing natural philosophy mm -hmm. until they could explain stuff, and then it was called physics. I think that's true of philosophy of mind, too. I mean, I took philosophy courses mm. in uh, college, and what they were good at was posing questions articulating questions but if you wanted the answers you have to turn to science yes. but also what i found is by getting to a, a deep principled understanding of something it helps me to articulate new questions that i couldn't have done mm -hmm. just based on intuition alone mm -hmm. intuition is limited. I mean, it is so important that because we can't consciously see, because we can't consciously feel and so on, that helps us to know at least, well, what are we trying to explain? I want to explain how I see. 
you know, how I see color and brightness and texture and shading and objects and, you know, motion and, you know, all this stuff. So it gives us a whole series of chapter headings. Mm. But to actually explain it, you have to think in a totally different way. And finding that way, I have found, requires an immersion into large databases that probe the different aspects of the properties that you're trying to explain. You you can't just say, hey, I bet it's like this and be right. Mm -hmm. The chances are as close to zero as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, hunches are good, don't get me wrong. I mean, hunches help theorists think about, oh, I should have been thinking about that. But the hunch you'll have after you know a lot will be very different from the hunch you have when you know very little. Steve, you, you mentioned you know Paul Churchland, and he, he was a very prominent... No, I don't, I don't know Paul. Okay, but you know of Paul. I just knew... Yeah, I, I, knew, I knew that he did some good work, but I haven't looked at it for many years. Okay, so there was Paul and Pat Patricia Churchland, and they yeah. were the theory known as eliminative materialism. And what that was, was it was, it's a very radical claim, basically ordinary common sense terms. So common sense understandings of the mind, they claim to be deeply incorrect. They felt that folk psychological terms that we use. So even saying things like learning or thought, etc., don't technically work in the physical world, because when you take materialism to be true, you have to realize that reality is just neurons firing. It's actually got, there is no secondary reality in psychology where we could say things like, okay, that's thought, that's memory, that's conscious experiences. Because in reality, that's just neurons firing, that's just blood circulating, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, well, what are your thoughts? Well, well, the, well, the, well first, words like learning and thought are more chapter headings, you know, they, they're not theories, mm -hmm. they're not principles, they're chapter headings. Then you've got, to, if you're going to continue using those words at all, you've got to say what you mean. So, for example, I invented the phrase adaptive resonance in order to describe uh, a brain process for which there was a great deal of evidence that I could explain. The word wasn't there before, and I've done that. We've talked about spectral timing. I invented the word spectral timing. Um, we talked about neural relativity. I invented the word neural relativity. You know, I mean, all these words come out of a, an analysis of lots of data. But, you know, again, we're just getting back to the problem of emergent properties. It's not just neurons. It's neuronal interactions that generate emergent properties that often cause actions that lead to feedback that create a cycle mm -hmm. of perception, cognition, emotion, action over and over and over as you evolve in the world. And through that cycle, if there are statistically repeatable enough or stable enough properties of that interaction, you will learn. 
mm-hmm. about them as appropriate to the circuits that are resonating with those particular invariants. And as I mentioned last time, you know, we talked briefly about cognitive emotional interactions. To me, it was very satisfying that cognitive and emotional circuits share many properties, but one thing they don't share is their inputs and their outputs. Like with emotion, you have a lot of interoceptive inputs of hunger, satiety, pain, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. relief, happiness, and 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 with cognition, usually there's a perceptual front end in vision, audition, you know, tac- tactile that drive those. And then there's an interface that resonates. So a lot of the circuitry can be shared, but specialized in order to be able to resonate with particular invariants of the environments that they are trying to um, uh, understand. That's a bad word, it's a loaded word. To the environments for which they have adapted. Um, yes, yeah, so emergent properties, emergent properties, emergent properties, which you cannot understand without a sufficiently powerful and principled computational, mathematically rigorous theory. Yes. And there's that explanatory gap without the theory. And Um, in your work, I mean, you refer to this as a, establishing a linking hypothesis. Between brain and mind, yeah. Mm. Well, it's a, familiar phrase Mm. linking hypothesis Um, yeah and I don't want us to go in circles but if you don't have a way to generate the emergent properties linking to behavior then you really can't mechanistically explain behavior okay so I've got a lot of questions from from fans and audience members in general, but mm-hmm. I can tell that some of them are going to take us in circles. <laughs> so I'm a bit well. Ahead. That's okay. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's bad to say the same thing more than once. Okay. Uh, I think I might have mentioned I I would sometimes give the same keynote at two different conferences, and assuming that because they were in different continents or whatever, a lot of the people hadn't heard it, and then I see in the audience some of the same people and they said you know it's good to hear more than once mm-hmm. oh by the way i forgot to mention you know um there are when it, when it comes to my 2017 paper on the hard problem i do have keynote lectures mm-hmm. about that on my web page the my web page url again is sites s i t e s dot b U for Boston University dot edu for education slash Steve G. That's S T E V E G. Sites slash Steve G. So for people who want to hear uh, that lecture given, I 
I might have given that one in more than one form, I forget. And sometimes I will have both of them put on my webpage. But there are a number of keynotes that I try to make self-contained for interdisciplinary audiences. Um, but, you know, as we were joking before, self-contained depends on where you're coming from. No, exactly. But they keep inviting me back. So I assume I couldn't have been that bad. I keep getting invited back. So, Well, I'm um, hoping that having I, back here as well will help to solidify some of these concepts for people because I think it does require repeat reading, repeat watching, and repeat listening just to get all of these. Well, in your way, oh, well, Steve, feel um, and experience this a lot more, resonate with it a bit. Well, I, I would recommend, you know, a discussion such as ours, I think, for me, is successful if it motivates someone to want to learn more. Mm. And then I would recommend someone go to one of the videos on my webpage or YouTube or wherever um, and listen to the lecture. Yes. And, only, and and maybe listen more than once and stop it and repeat if you, what is he talking about? And after you've done that, until you feel I know a little better, then go to some of the articles. And some of the articles are heuristic, like my 2017 paper is in a way, yes. even though it breaks new ground, in a way it's a review paper because a lot of the foundational mathematical work is earlier or I wouldn't have had the nerve to write that paper because I knew everything I was writing is supported by mathematical models and computer simulations of challenging data. So, you know, there were levels from an S, you know, our chat to videos of self-contained lectures to reading, hopefully non-technical review papers to technical ones, but really the best resource I can recommend is my magnum opus, mm. conscious mind, resonant brain, colon, how each brain makes a mind, because there I, I work really hard to write a self-contained and non-technical synthesis and overview of my work in many different areas, as well as to bring together and try to clarify the meaning of the work of really hundreds of other scientists. So, but as we might have mentioned last time, you know, we are talking about this, and this is one of the hard things to understand in the world. So nothing that I would write about it, I hope, would be trivial, but I hope it's, you could see, oh, he's writing clearly I just have to stop and think about what he just wrote. Mm. And one reason I have over 600 color figures is to help people to visualize um, the concepts that the words are trying to express. Because until you can get a picture in your mind, it's often hard to know what the hell someone's talking about. And it's not only me, it's anything. Um, so, uh, yeah. Steve, talk to me about one of the, one of the other very leading theories of consciousness 
um, which is global neuron, neuronal workspace. What are your views on that theory of consciousness? Well, I, I'm not going to give a, um, a professional review like you would for a journal article. Yes. <laughs> I'm blocking on who's, I'm, I know the, the very nice fellow who promotes Bernard, it. What is his name? Uh, Bernard Bars. Yeah, I know Bernie Bars. He's a very nice guy and he's very dedicated and sincere. Um, just check what his predictive and explanatory range is. That's all I could say. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not for me to. Yes. Try to give a review of Bernie's work. You should ask Bernie to review his work. I think it's um, always intriguing to see where, I mean, you guys either align or disagree. It's fascinating, for, particularly for the audience, to kind of get a, get a grasp of where you guys diverge or intersect. Well, I could discuss if Bernie had an explanation of a certain fact and I thought it was correct, I'd say, yeah, I agree. But if I thought it was incorrect, I'd say, well, I would explain it as follows. That I can do. Hmm. But to give some holistic, hand-waving evaluation of Bernie's hard work, no, I, I, I won't play that game. Hmm. Not, it, I don't think it's constructive. If people find value in reading Bernie's work, they should read it. If there are still questions they'd like answered and they can find some of those questions given more complete answers in my work, they should read my book. There is a, so, there is a, a section within the book where you do discuss it and, and the fact that that theory sort of does provide a little bit more information when you compare it to the other ones that we briefly discussed. Oh, yeah, Bernie, Bernie is, is more serious, I think. Okay. Um, okay, let's let... Let's but, you know... Uh, I'd like to leave it at that. Really. Okay, no, no. So, fine. what if somebody was that? Was that one of the questions? Some what, someone wants no, no, to comment. I haven't on? yet gotten to those. Well, get you better get to that because okay. it's an hour and a half in, and <laughs> I can go up to two hours or so. But Let, let's go. Let's go. So, one of my friends actually asked this question. Um, this question, this first question, one of my friends asked us. Uh, he wants to remain un, unnamed, but he wants to know at what. So let me just read this. <clears throat> at what point would, no, sorry, I just missed. Okay. At what point would Professor Grossberg delineate between zero conscious experience and conscious experience? Are all conscious experiences considered to be resonant states in that regard? Well, um, you know, later in my book, I, I, I talk about quite a few mental disorders. And um, for example, without talking about parametric properties of behavioral symptoms and the mechanisms that cause them and what has gone wrong there in altering consciousness, you know, if you don't have a sufficiently sustained and energetic adaptive resonance that is resonating with either external stimuli or internal memory representations, it won't get to consciousness. 
You know, uh, what I'm blocking on his name now. Oh, he does very nice work. You know, um, oh, I talk about it a little in my book where, you know, usually the stimulation our senses get by the time we're consciously aware of it can be 150 to 300 milliseconds later. And um, that's partly because in addition to the um, all the pre-processing stages, you then have to activate resonating circuits that have to resonate uh, for a sufficiently sustained energetic interval before it becomes conscious. So anything that prevents that will not become conscious. And there are many ways it can be prevented. Um, yeah. Uh, in your work, I mean, you clearly do, and in your work, you clearly also you address the fact that not, not all resonant states are conscious states, but conscious states are always resonant states. Yes, not all resonant states are conscious, and I give examples of that. Mm -hmm. yes. For example, I mentioned grid cells and play cells. Well, entorhinal hippocampal resonances, which support the stable learning, stable and coordinated learning of grid and play cell receptor fields, are not conscious. Mm -hmm. They are not linked to internal or external sources of, of sensory experience. Um, not directly, you know, for example, uh, grid cells are sensitive to linear motions and rotational motions, but those sensors uh, aren't designed to support qualia. And so, you know, there's just no, nothing like a conscious awareness there. Mm. There are inputs, but the inputs are very low level. Um, now, it's another matter entirely if you try to link the spatial representations that are learned in grid and play cells with information like optic flow, visual cues that are being synthesized when you navigate. So you use combinations of visual and motor information to know where you are. And then if you're suddenly in the dark, you use path integration information. That's what the information about the linear and angular movement is all about. It's path integration. You're integrating how far these senses think you've gone. That's your ground truth. And my um, PhD student, Bill Gnad, and I developed a uh, rather comprehensive uh, animat model of how, for example, how an animat would, under visual guidance, learn to uh, efficiently um, uh, acquire a um, a food reward, say that's uh, in a maze. You know how you would 
first you would just be randomly exploring the maze, you know, that would be endogenous exploratory behavior. And then how that, as you explore it, how that is transformed into an efficient, goal-oriented series of actions to efficiently acquire the goal mm -hmm. in some distal part of the maze. And there we do combine the visual and the path integration information to help learn how to solve that problem. I forget what we call the model. It was a, oh, the sovereign model, sovereign for self-organizing visual expectation. You know, let me wait, sovereign, maybe I can <laughs> sovereign. And I think that Bill thought of this one. I thought, hey, that's not bad. Self-organizing vision, expectation, resonance, and on and on. I can't even remember what the other letters stand for, but it is an acronym that captures the essence of what the architecture is doing. And I say architecture because it's not just a model. It's a very you know, you know, sparse version of a full animat. It doesn't have higher cognition, but it has working memory. Mm. You know, it, it can learn sequential actions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there, you know, the design of working memory, I don't think we talk much about that, but you know, you can de derive all working memories from a couple of simple postulates, both having to do with stable learning. It's not surprisingly, but this is stable learning of sequences. So even though in a working memory, it would be like, you know, to have remember the following series of letters, five, two, eight, eight, nine, five, three. And, you know, you can repeat it back to me, 5288953. But if I distract you and say, hey, repeat it back to me, you can't because it's in a short-term temporary working memory buffer. You know, in computer science algorithms, they sometimes call it a blackboard, but this is more than a blackboard. This is a self-organizing blackboard. <laughs> and one of the key issues here is how do you know which subsequence of all the sequences you've just experienced is predictive in a given context? Mm. And, you know, the theory gives a solution to that problem. You want me to and, um, what? Oh, sorry, you were, you, sorry, continue, Steve. Well, well, and, you know, you could see immediately there are, there are issues, let's say, I have already learned the word my, and I've learned the word self, and in particular, I've learned recognition categories of my and self. But now for the first time in working memory, I represent myself, a new word with a new meaning. First problem, why doesn't adding self after my undermine the previously learned uh, inputs to the my and self category. But the second problem is, how do you learn a new category for myself 
given you have two perfectly good categories, my and self, that are already learned. How do you overcome the salience of the known to self-organize a larger grouping that's unknown? And of course, if you couldn't do this, you couldn't learn language or dance or navigational sequential skills because we're talking here about short words, my and self. The same problem arises with individual phonemes grouped into words. And so, um, you know, my theory of working memories um, offers a computational solution to that, you know, based on very simple principles. Remarkably, that also was first published in my human memory paper in 78 when communication memory and development came out. It was a good year. And, and one of the reasons I got into it was because it often fails. You know, you might not know, but there was a, a let me give you the simplest example of it. I was interested more in verbal learning when, from when I was a boy, but, but did you ever hear of George Miller's The Magical Number Seven Plus or Minus Two? Well, George Miller was the person who introduced the notion of a chunk. And he basically showed that most people, if you tell them a series of numbers or letters or whatever, they can't repeat it right back to you without learning, uh, well, without actively trying to learn if the, the sequence is more than five to maybe nine, depending on the person units. But then what he showed about chunks is that, you know, you could do that for much higher level chunks. You know, like, let's say you're controlling the movements of a dance and you know each movement, you're, you know, professional ballet dancer and you can do uh, all of the individual movements and now you know, Georges Balanchine is teaching the new dance. Well, you have to be able to put that sequence of movements into working memory where each of the items in working memory is a chunk of a familiar dance gesture. And so that he realized you could have, you know, sequences of chunks creating another chunk. And you could get higher and higher. And that's how we learned so many of the higher order things because we chunked all the lower order stuff and automated it. So we don't have to pay focal attention to things that are already chunked. They more or less can be done under very much less oversight. Anyway, so that's what this theory is about. Um, how you get this chunking really by solving the myself problem by um, in a stable way. It's sort of like the stability, plasticity, dilemma solved for sequence learning. Um, but that was too far afield maybe, <laughs> but it did get a new, it got a new information. Yes, at least. And it was in. Oh, I was talking about sovereign. You need that 
to learn sequences of turns in Sovereign. Um, yeah. Okay, so the next question is, uh, is from YouTube. It's by Ecstasy. <coughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly at all. Um, different, functional different functional modalities have been proposed to explain the emergence of qualia from physical properties. Under the given art framework, how would residents, even in principle, explain the perception of a qualitative state? I'm not sure what a qualitative state is. I don't mean to be perverse. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, of course, is that uh, we have to ask ourselves what flavor of what we're talking about. You know, the category learning stuff, as I had briefly reviewed last time, is about feature category resonances. But if you're talking about experiences from the external world, let's say a visual experience, um, what you're often conscious of is a surface shroud resonance, which is a conscious seeing. And if you synchronize surface shroud and feature category resonances, you know and see about the object or event, and then the surface shroud resonance via posterior parietal cortex can control uh, actions which you've learned in response to that combination of events. But now I didn't understand the last two words there. I don't know what they mean. Yeah, what I, were the last two words? In I think qualitative state is basically referring to qualia, that qualia-like state. Well, I just commented on that. Yeah. You know, you have, you have surface shroud resonance, you have stream shroud resonances. They're not the same as basic category learning. Uh, and they, and when I hear and see and know things about you, there are coordinated synchronizations of surface shroud, stream shroud, mm. um, feature category and to the extent of which you're processing sequences you know their item list resonances responding to all this because that's where you get understanding of speech and language so there are all these resonances that are being coordinated quite wonderfully uh, and you know you have resonance and reset resonance and reset so as as our visual representations of a momentary visual experience is reset by your movement or what have you and I have another frame and so I have a sequence of these you know likewise we're updating all our working memories because the sequential information that's forming the context um, is changing one of my articles you know I try to bring together a lot of a lot of these ways of thinking in an article that <clears throat> I, I think that I published it in 2019 2020 um, I, it, it, it's an article that starts well I think it, it's one of the later maybe it's one of the later chapters in my book, um, let me, um, 
you have the chapter names in front of you by chance? I don't. Let me let me let me try to search for it. Um, it it's important that I make this comment. Let me. Okay, I'll go to my. Uh, okay, now let me see. Um, oh, I have to turn off airplane mode. That was to stop me from getting bothered. Airplane mode. Okay. I'll be there in a minute. I have no fear. It's fine. I'm just collecting um, these other questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think this is it. As a list of the chapter titles on the Oxford listing. Oops, I hit the wrong thing. Gosh, damn. Okay. Okay, let me see. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was chapter 14. How prefrontal cortex works. Um, colon, cognitive working memory, planning, and emotion can jointly achieve valued goals. And um, yeah, sorry, Steve. My my copy of the book isn't in this office. No, it's fine. I'm I'm looking at it, but. But um, yeah, and I'm, I'm. It's not. I have the abstract and the keywords here. Okay. Um, but it's. Let me get the book. One second. I'll get it. <laughs> I have a, a copy in the next room. So, anyway, for people who haven't seen the cover, this is the cover, and the background around the brain is neon color spreading. If you look carefully at it you'll see the red or the blue spreading out of their crosses. Because um, I thought of that, you know, as such an important example of um, uh, the complementarity of boundaries and surfaces. And let me go here. Okay, 517. I wanted to... That artwork, what, what, except for that aspect. What is that? The artwork. Well, what? How did you come up with the with that as the idea for the artwork? Asa, how did I come up with the idea? Oh well, um, I wanted a cover that um, sort of said what the book is about. So you know, the title is on a brain, and. Um, uh, the brain is in two hemifields, and I fiddled with trying to indicate the complementarity of the hemifields because the water and where streams and stuff like that, other parts of the brain are complementary, made it too complicated. Mm. But so that's it, it's just brain, but neon color spreading, the spreading is an emergent property that happens in our mind. Mm. It's a property of our conscious visual awareness and i thought it would be nice to emphasize on the cover 
It's about emergent properties. Um, and um, uh, I'm trying, I, I thought I, oh yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, Betsy Murray uh, stimulated me to, to make some of these discoveries because Betsy told me that they had all this wonderful data in prefrontal cortex that no one could explain. And so she sent me the paper and I realized that not only could I explain it, but I predicted some of it. And, you know, and they have, you know, words like desirability and availability and stuff like that, which are good words for the phenomena they were talking about. But, you know, a macro circuit, an incomplete one of, of the predictive adaptive resonance theory I needed for this, I don't know if you could see that. Yes. But I couldn't put in the basal ganglia or a number of other things. Mm. And those different colors, the red, green, what have you, are systems. And so it just showed that, like for prefrontal cortex, I needed and, and explained data from seven interacting parts of the prefrontal cortex. It's not a unitary thing, it's a complex organ. And, and then I also, in red, I had some of the main reinforcement learning kind of things. That, and then just in black and white, I had some of the main vision and um, spatial kind of things. Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> I, uh, you want me to move? I, I think the point I was, the point was I was trying to clarify that, um, you know, uh, the prefrontal cortical work really is a synthesis of a, a lot of work. Um, yes, no, it, it, and I, and I think, I think that, um, <clears throat> Uh, things really came together in a nice way. <clears throat> um, you know, at a number of points in my book, I point out, you shouldn't take for granted that the next step could be taken. Mm. And this happened to me over and over again, how the previous work sort of thrust me into a new area where I knew they were interacting with me. And the same things with the prefrontal cortical work. So many parts of the brain are interacting there to explain really challenging quantitative data, physiological data mostly. But, um, you know, it's all an accumulation of evidence. Mm. And if you're a really good theorist, you can weigh the, the amount of evidence for this part or that part or the other part. You know where the weaknesses are, where, where you might have variations on a theme that don't undermine any of the principles as you would expect for species-specific variations of the design. Mm. Um, 
and you also know what you can't explain and and that keeps you up nights <laughs> until you can, well, I can so this is not this is not finished, but I think if someone wanted to get into an overview of some of my work after this discussion and maybe looking at a, a lecture of mine on my web, you might look at my magnum opus. And I wanted to emphasize one thing. It's a long book. Uh, after you read the preface and introductory chapter one, I wrote it so that you could jump directly to any chapter that topic interested you. You don't have to read it all. I don't expect even interested people have the time or interest to read it all. The chapters are written independently of each other. And so, you know, if you wanted to read more about art in the sense of future category resonance, jump, jump to chapter five. But if you wanted to read about prefrontal cortex, you'd go to chapter 13. If you wanted to know about spatial navigation, I think it was chapter 16. Yes. If you wanted to know about visual perception, <coughs> go to the first few chapters and so on. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that aspect. I said this the last time. It's uh, that, that easily accessible nature of the book, the way you can just jump from chapter to chapter without having a preconceived idea of the previous chapter makes it very <coughs> accessible. Um, Steve, one last question, and this one's from Facebook. <laughs> this is a funny one. Francina, um, uh, who resonates most in the Grossberg Carpenter household? <laughs> um, <laughs> Whoa, I now this is getting very personal. <laughs> who resonates most with what? I have no idea. That's just the that's where the question ends. <laughs> well, all I can it was meant say, to be funny, and yet also highlighting the fact that you both are powerhouses in the field. Well, all I could say is that um, Gail Carpenter is the love of my life. We've been together for a half century. Um, uh, she has strict instructions that she can't predecease me. Because she's younger than I am. Um, we already spoke on the phone earlier today. I'm in Truro on Cape Cod, and she's back in Newton, where we have our main residence. I'll be talked to at least two, three more times today. Um, she's a brilliant neural network modeler. Um, she's done foundational work. Uh, as well as really doing some of the best work on large-scale applications, like she did really uh, important work on remote sensing, um, on uh, medical database prediction. And one of the things she did that I think should be studied more, and I think she'd agree, in a remote sensing context where you can have multiple observers. They're each looking at different pieces of a remotely sensed uh, terrain, maybe with different combinations of sensors. They will create their own personal labels 
for what they're trying to describe. Uh, one person might say water, one person might say pond, another person might say lake for the very same object. And they only do this for a subset, usually a pretty small subset, of um, the remotely sensed uh, terrain because it's expensive to get ground truth. Someone has to be running around down there. Yeah. How do you input this kind of information, which may be um, incomplete, probabilistic, sometimes self-contradictory, and out of it, automatically learn a cognitive hierarchy of rules, including the confidence you have of the links in the hierarchy. Whereas you get higher and higher in the, in the um, higher and higher in the rules, they get more and more abstract. Mm. I think that is a, a foundational uh, contribution, really quite a wonderful one that needs a lot more work um, you know, Gail and I are both uh, no longer teaching. We're both emeritus, and it doesn't mean we're brain dead. I <laughs> just published my last paper, I think, a few weeks ago, and I'm writing another book. But, but you know, Gail's not going to work on that project again, and that project could really be very interesting especially if you're in some kind of a, a technology AI lab. That's a kind of project that Google could really sink its teeth into. Because mm. you could do it for the whole world. And, you know, part of it, we got into it because um, many years ago, I gave a lecture at the Optical Society meeting about some of the vision modeling work, and there were several program managers from MIT Lincoln Lab there, which is one of the great sensor houses in the world. You know, they have laid on multispectral IR, synthetic aperture radar, and so on, and very much pixelated data with, you know, very intense pixels and dropout pixels and a lot of noise and they realized that the kind of work even then that we were doing in vision modeling could help them process their sensor data. And in fact, there was a, a, a very active project at Lincoln Lab for a while doing that. They also designed a robot, a robot based on some of our ideas and sensory motor control course. Some of the models I developed with my students are platform independent. They work with wheels or legs or what have you. Yeah, so so what more should I say about my wife? <laughs> my best friend, the love of my life, the mother of a wonderful daughter, and we have wonderful grandchildren. We feel super lucky, super lucky. Uh, I love the way your face lights up when you talk about us, uh, Steve. So, sorry for the personal question, but I thought it's it's quite cool that you both are such great pioneers in this field. And I thought it would be a nice question to ask from, well, it wasn't mine, but 
that we'll be able to chose it. <laughs> well, to sum it up, we've been a real mom and pop show where I have many projects without Gail, she many without me. And we've done, I think, at least 20 projects together. And, you know, they're sort of like our scientific children. Mm. Well, I, I think it's absolutely beautiful. And keep up, keep up the great work. Steve, thank you again for joining me. So I, I really appreciate uh, your round two. And you, you've also written a paper on, on illusions that I, that I find very fascinating. And I hope at some point we can also dissect one of those. And, and with that one, it will be far less philosophical and a lot more scientific. So I think you'll enjoy it a lot more as well. Yeah, well, I, I love studying, uh, especially visual illusions, because, you know, it's sort of like how very young people can get excited by mathematics. Some of the hardest problems in number theory you can say to any child, mm. and then it takes Fermat to solve it. And, uh, but visual illusions, it's, it's right there. You're, it's in your face. And the immediacy of it raises questions of how do you see anything? Mm. Yeah. And, uh, that's well, thanks, Ted, for having me on. My and so this would, be part, this would be part two of the series. Yes, definitely. Um, thanks so much. I enjoyed this. Cheers. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate it. Okay. Very much.